the investment in modern retail really is very underpenetrated in india and it's actually exorbitantly expensive to do which is where i think e-commerce and digital sales in brand building come in i think you've taken away the expense of the real estate and you're still able to display your products in a very interesting manner which is what i was telling you about the browse versus the search platform because you know the ability to actually display a brand is very different and you also have infinite retail capacity because you're able to give people much more choice so i think that is very different because you've taken away a dramatic cost to brand building in the form of i would say first world retail prices i think that's number one welcome to prime venture partners podcast a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to build and grow their startups learn about uncommon strategies and common traps from makers and doers of startup ecosystem Welcome to Prime Podcast. My guest today is Anant Narayanan, founder and CEO at Mensa Brands. Anant, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Anant, maybe we could spend just a couple of minutes tracing your your background and you know starting off through your various journeys and how it ended up at Mensa. So, I don't think I've had a usual path. I guess many people don't, but you know, I started off as a consultant. I worked at McKinsey and Company for about 15 years. I did mostly automotive and supply chain work across you know the US. Uh, I lived in China for a few years and then finally in China. I think then the startup journey started after after McKinsey where I joined Mintra as the CEO. This was right after Flipkart acquired Mintra and I think Mukesh had gone on to work in the in the Flipkart platform. So Sachin and Bini were looking for someone to come run Mintra. And so I joined Mintra as the CEO in 2015. I was there for almost four years. That was sort of the initiation to the startup world. It's, as you guys know, it's a cool platform. And, you know, the business almost, you know, grew four or five X and we got to almost profitability. But I think more interestingly, I think we did some very interesting, both a combination of interesting business model and commercial and technical work that made it an interesting browse platform as opposed to a search platform, which is mm-hmm. what most e-commerce players are. And fashion is a browse category inherently. So, you know, it was interesting to do that. After the sale to Walmart, I thought I would do something more entrepreneurial. So I actually, you know, invested into a company called MedLife, which is an e-pharmacy business and joined as the founder and CEO and then our co-founder and CEO. And then I think that business, we sort of grew and scaled, went through uh, good times went through difficult times. We eventually sold to the number one player in the industry, which was Farmeasy. And, and that's that's gone well. Farmeasy sort of consolidated its market leadership and hopefully it will go public soon. About 12 months ago, then I started Mensa after the sale to the Farmeasy, sale to Farmeasy. Mensa actually means constellation. We are trying to build a constellation of stars. Each of our brands is a star. So we want to build the, the mission is really how do we build a global tech-led house of brands out of it? The idea was actually quite simple. It was basically saying brands are going to be built very differently the next 50 years than they were built the last 50 years because distribution is democratized and the way brands get built are done much more on social media and through conversations as opposed to the brand talking to the customer. So felt like both those were different and therefore we could do it differently. And we've sort of since then started off, we've had a good start. We focus on fashion, beauty and home brands. We have about 25 brands in our portfolio across these three segments. We sell not just in India, but in the US, in the Middle East, and in Europe. And, and it's an interesting mix where we have tried to productize every element of brand building, right? So if you're going to run 25 brands, you have to think product first, and you have to sort of think about pricing, visibility, 
brand analytics, supply chain, operations. So each of these, we sort of take every element of the PL of a brand and say, how can we actually build product around it? And that allows us to sort of manage a portfolio more effectively and efficiently and, and really scale. And I think this, you know, the goal five years from now is if we can have 10 household names that come out of here, that would be quite interesting. I mean, one factoid for people who are watching, there are less than 30 brands that are north of $100 million each in fashion, beauty, and home across a country the size of India with 1.3, 1.35 billion people, right? So there's a huge and massive opportunity. And I think that's what we're trying to do. Well, I can't help commenting one thing on your background, starting with University of Madras, Michigan, McKinsey, Mintra, Medlife, and Mensa. Is there? There, there is a pattern to this, not conscious, but the, but it looks like I can't avoid the M word. So, you know, it's good. Well, I just couldn't have noticed that. But let's to the, do you think that the motivation behind Mensa, right? So what is it that you observed perhaps in Mintra, which led you to say that, you know, no. these are the confluence, like the macro factors are such that, you know, something like this might make sense because this didn't exist. I mean, this, this entire concept wouldn't have been right. viable, you know, maybe even five years ago. Yeah, yeah. No, no, great question. I think three big factors. The first is, I think India, so fashion, beauty, and home are 120 billion plus market in India, but 80 plus percent of that is unbranded. So there's a vacuum of brands in India. And what happens in most economies is as the GDP per capita goes up, people want brands because brands have meaning and purpose. So they just don't want utility, they want brands of meaning and purpose. So I think the first mega factor is, I think there'll be more brands that get built in India in this space, right? I think that's one. The second is, you know, look, if you take Unilever, if you take Inditex, if you take any of these larger companies that have built brands, the moats have historically been the following. One is distribution, which is you have a multi-step distribution and you have therefore the reach to the Kirana store or the retailer in the end, and you're able to manage that process efficiently. The second is because the moat was distribution, you do few SKUs and you sort of talk about the brand loudly through ATR, right? Which is how brands were built, right? And I think what's changed in the last five years is that there are now rails built by Flipkart, Mintra, Amazon, Nika, NGO, et cetera, where you can reach 26,000 pin codes in this country in less than three days at less than 140 rupees, right? I mean, that's a massive change. That's number one. Number two is you have now a 120, 130 million transacting customers online, right? Who basically, whether they buy an involved product online or not, certainly research the product online. So brand <laughs> building certainly happens very differently, right? So if you look at, if you sort of plot TV advertising revenues versus Amazon, that's an interesting chart of shoots. But it's interesting now that more and more and more brand building happens online because data <laughs> is relatively free. In this country, it's one of the lowest costs globally. So this combination of, so the first factor is there are no brands. The second factor is, I think distribution and brand building, which are the two modes, are being done very differently now than they were five years ago, because, you know, the rails have been built and now you can do many things on top of them. I think that's the second thing that I think is very different. The third is actually a uniquely Indian factor, which is India has always been very good at manufacturing. I mean, if you look at Zara, you look at 
you know, you look at half the brands globally, they're all made in India, right? India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, at least on the fashion side and increasingly more on home and beauty, right? Fashion and home for sure. But, but we've never built brands globally, right? So, you know, therefore I sort of looked at all of these and said, look, I mean, the next 10 years could be build brands from India that actually become household names and go global. And I think it's a unique opportunity. And I think it's a decade long opportunity. I think the next 10 years, the best 10 years to build brands out of India because of the following, the reasons that I outlined. And I think that's what makes it quite exciting because I don't think we've been able to build brands from India for the globe before. Because we've never been able to get to critical scale and critical size. Understand your point that, you know, brands, we are mostly unbranded as a country in terms of our purchases. But I also thought that that was primarily because uh, we are extremely, extremely value conscious. uh, As as a society, and uh, of course, our GDP is not that high to warrant brands. And brands require expense to actually be built. So... So how are you, how should we actually think about this trend which you talked about, which was your point number one? Yeah, no, I think great question. So look, firstly, by the way, why is brand building expensive? It's because, by the way, we have first world real estate prices, but actually we have India-like purchasing power parity, right? So, you know, what happens is the, the investment in modern retail really is very underpenetrated in India and it's actually exorbitantly expensive to do which is where I think e-commerce and digital sales in brand building come in. I think you've taken away the expense of the real estate and you're still able to display your products, right? In a, in a very interesting manner, which is what I was telling you about the browse versus the search platform, because, mm-hmm. you know, the ability to actually display a brand is very different. And you also have infinite retail capacity because you're able to give people much more choice, right? So I think, that is very different because you've taken away a dramatic cost to brand building in the form of, I would say, first world retail prices. I think that's number one. Number two is, I think since modern retail hasn't been built, you know, it becomes progressively more expensive to build modern retail to display a brand as you go more and more from tier one cities into tier two, to tier three, into tier four, right? Because, you know, it's by definition, it's harder to build. However, the demand is coming from all of these places because now you have e-commerce access. And by the way, they have an equal need for brands, but they're actually not able to get to and see a physical brand representation. So I think one thing that's different in, even though we're a value conscious market, right? I think you can build value conscious brands, right? You have to make the economics of the value conscious brand work, in which case digital first channels become the right way to sort of do it, right? So I think that's that's one thing that's different. I think the second thing that's different is the average customer between 20 and 35 is starting to look for more meaning and purpose in brands than what I think happened earlier, right? I think the value consciousness to purpose and value is slowly but steadily happening as a new demographic of customers come and start to consume. And I think that, by the way, also becomes easier. Storytelling and content become easier online or at least less expensive online to be able to display and to explain to customers and to reach customers than a classic distribution model so in so the i can see that you know the brands will be still something which even a tier two or tier three customer would want is what you're saying and if you make it more cost effective uh, right. and in tune with the with the new medium uh, i guess we can uh, we can build brands so if i were uh, starting a d2c brand today yeah. and let's say i'm starting something in clothing and it's a uh, maybe it's traditional indian clothing right uh, so 
what would be the value proposition which which Mensa would have for me? I mean, because I might also say that you know, putting it on Shopify, I already have these these channels. Sure. So how, how does how does that work? Yeah, no, I think great question again. So look, I think the cost of starting a brand has come down dramatically. You need two, two people in a computer and a little bit of working capital to be able to start a brand. However, I think the cost and the degree of complexity of scaling a brand are very different. So what it takes to build a 20 crore brand is very different than what it takes to build a 200 crore brand, which is very different than what it takes to build a 1,000 crore brand, because I think they're all two very, three very different stages. So why do founders come to Mensa? I think the first actually is expertise, which is we have a bunch of people who have grown in scale brands. The largest brand in Mintra was a brand called Roadster, which is now north of 1,400 crores, right, in revenue and continuing to grow and is very profitable. So they come for expertise. The second is actually, by the way, they come for talent. It's very hard as a small brand to be able to attract the kind of talent that you need, whether it's product and technology, whether it's operations, etc. Right. So you actually need talent. And the third, of course, is capital. I mean, the venture capital world covers 1% of the Indian ecosystem. I have, by the way, in the last, I would say, 13, 14 months, I must have met 700 founders. Wow. Right. And so I think it's quite interesting because there's a whole set of founders that you don't normally meet. We have founders, you know, I can give you examples. We have a founder of Pretty Crafts, Pratik, who lives in Indore and has built a fantastic business. We have Morbashir, who lives in Calcutta and has built Estelon, which is a leather brand, into a 2030 crore brand. We have Pallavi, who lives in Pune and has built a sari brand, right? I mean, these are things that you don't see. And these are all 20, 30, 40 and bootstrapped and profitable. And the really, the reason they come to you is, I mean, I think the third is capital, but it's the third reason. The first two are, how can Mensa help the brand become a household name? And I think that's the exciting part for a brand in my mind, right? I think most founders in India, especially. So in the US, by the way, there are many aggregator models, as you know. And I think the aggregator models are a lot more transactional. Mm -hmm. You're looking for an exit. You know, you are in your late 40s, early 50s. You know, you want to sell and sort of settle down. Here, by the way, I would say of the 20 plus brands that we have, 16 of the founders, right, are folks that I would have hired into Mintra or Midlife, right? And, you know, they're between 20 and 35. They want their brand to become a household name. They want to learn. So it's very different. And second is, by the way, from our standpoint, all the founders stay with us for a long period of time, right? They are part of the Mensa family, right? They continue to hold some level of equity. And it actually, by the way, becomes a very symbiotic relationship because you bring complementary skills. Most founders are very good at sourcing and design. We are very good at marketing, branding, growth hacking, and, and operations, and all of the boring stuff around finance and HR, all of which are needed to go from 20 to 200 crores or 200 to 400. Would you ever come across a situation, and I'm a, a founder who came and had a beautiful sari brand, and you said, you know what, you should, great idea, but you should really merge with Pallavi's brand. Right. And we could actually make it bigger. And does that kind of conversation occur because brands yeah. are as much labor of love as much as they are about Correct, things, correct. Right? No, so they haven't occurred yet. I think, you know, so far what we've done is we've picked a brand in a category. So, for example, okay. what we do is we pick one in ethnic. And, you know, I mean, there could be a different sari brand and an ethnic wear brand, but we wouldn't have two brands at the same price point competing for the same thing. Right? So, Got so it. far it hasn't happened because we have... We, we've sort of top down said we don't want competing brands because you're trying to build brands, right? And brands take five years to build. So you have to bet on a, a founder, you have to bet on a brand, and then you have oh, to sort of build it. it to the client. So ultimately, five years out, how many brands will Mensa have then? I mean, is it, that must be a 
there's a limit to this, right? Well, do you know how many brands Unilever has? No, I don't. It's a thousand, a little oh, over wow. a thousand. So, I mean, not obviously all of them are equally large, et cetera. So I think if you take a five-year view, I, I would like to say we would have maybe a hundred brands, out of which I would say 10 are breakout brands that really are growing in triple digits. You know, our category leaders are global and become hopefully what I call household names, right? Because you recognize the brand when you walk into a room, right? So that's what we want to do. So there'll be a distribution for sure. Not as much as maybe the venture capital world, but I think all our brands, I think we hope will be successful. But I think top 10%, maybe we're 40, 50% of our total revenue, right? Okay. Um, Got and it. we'll have 100 brands across these three categories. So then coming back to the original question here, you might actually use these brands to consolidate other over, over a period of time. We might. We might. It could happen. But I, so at least the way I see it, right? We have 20 brands now. I can see four or five brands clearly breaking out already. Right. And I could see them being north of $100 million. Right. We have a brand called Dennis Lingo, which I'm very excited by. It's casual wear. You go search for casual shirts in any platform. Apart from the couple of sponsored ads, Dennis Lingo will always be on top, which is the growth hacking and the product and tech piece of it. Right. But, you know, it's interesting. It was a 30 crore run rate business when we partnered up with Romil. And now it's north of 110 crores. Right. And, and over what period of time? Over seven months. Oh, wow. And all driven so, domestically? All driven domestically. I mean, we've increased the number of channels they sell to, which is another unique, interesting thing about India, right? See, I think if you do this in the US, you're primarily Amazon as a channel with a little bit of Walmart, right? Here, yeah. I mean, across Flipkart, Mintra, Amazon, Nika, AJO, Misho. I mean, you know, the, the distribution is quite democratic, right? Which actually is why it makes it interesting to be a brand. In India, you need to be supply. I think in the US, I think you're better off being the platform, right? So I think it's quite an interesting dynamic, but it's sort of grown north of 3x in seven months. And it's an EBITDA profitable business, right? We're not burning money to grow. We're not burning money on customer acquisitions. I mean, of course, we, we're spending money on customer acquisitions, but the value of the acquisitions far outweigh the, yeah, the yeah. cost of acquiring them, which is what a regular business does, right? So I think, you know, so it's been very interesting. And a lot of it is driven through tech. The new products, for example, how do we introduce new shirts? We've gone from shirts to T-shirts to trousers. And we use a lot of tech and a lot of visual tech, right, to understand what is actually trending, what is not. How do we actually pick up patterns and colors so we make less errors, right? That's one. Second is we actually understand the algorithms and what each of the platforms look for. So is delivery speed important? Is sales velocity over the last week important? Are reviews and ratings important? I mean, of course, they're all important, but which one matters more for which platform? Mm -hmm. You know, the equivalent of real estate, when you go into a mall, you want to be on the ground floor. When you go into Amazon, you want to be on the first three swipes. The question is, how do you get on the first three swipes without paying a lot of tax, right? And I think that's the core of the growth hacking that we do. So is there no physical element at all? Huh? Will any of these brands No, no, great question. Up? We absolutely have a physical element. I believe that to build brands in India, you need to be present wherever the customer wants it. So very much a believer in offline. I'll give you another example. We have a brand called Villain. Villain, by the way, does perfumes. It's men's fragrances. It's sort of the bad boy image and, you know, your, mm -hmm. your own original self and all of the rest, right? But there, by the way, 30% of the sales happen offline through general trade. I mean, we're present in 600 pharmacies and, you know, it sells very well. And it's an equally profitable channel. And we have another brand, you know, we have many of the brands that have offline presence. So I think, I don't think you can build a $100 million brand in India without offline. So the expertise is not just in digital. It will, it should also be on the physical setup. That's right. 
That's right. And I think even the offline can be very tech enabled. I would say the common platform, the common theme across all this is how can you tech enable? So you mentioned uh, global. So that seems to be like a, a, a different kettle of fish, right? So how would, because one of the things which I've heard about brands and the difficulty they have going global yep. starts off with like knowing what are the the sensibilities of, of audiences abroad as well as the quality requirements or the SLA requirements and sure. predictability of, of delivery and so on and so forth. So, so how should brands think about it and how do you enable that? So firstly, by the way, I don't think it's easy to do. I think it's hard to do. I don't think it's just opening up the Amazon tap and order sort of flow through. I wish that was so, but I don't think that's the case. So I'll give you an example, right? So for example, Karagiri, which is a sari brand, we've sort of opened up to the US and it's now starting to sell about 20% of the sales come from the US, which has been interesting because it's obviously Indiaspora, um, which is buying it, but mm-hmm. they're looking for fashionable, affordable saris and the Google and Facebook growth hacking remains the same. Obviously, the audience targeting is different and, and logistics and pipes for logistics have been solved by DHL and FedEx, quite effective. So that's one example. But the other interesting example is, by the way, we have brands, we have a brand which is very interesting called Folk Culture. Folk Culture is a bohemian home decor brand. It sells in India, it sells in the US, it sells in Europe. So there, the common theme is it's not size specific, so it's easier to sell uh, globally. But what the common skill and capability that you build is how do you actually do Amazon growth hacking? And if you sort of sort out Amazon growth hacking, you can actually make that happen, whether it's in the US, whether it's in Germany, whether it's in Canada, or whether it's in India, right? And I think the reviews and ratings carry over. So what's been interesting is it's a brand that's built here, has built its reviews and ratings more here in India. And you're using that to actually grow and scale the brand globally. Got it. Is there any, you know, do you think that the platforms themselves want to move up in this direction also in the sense that is there some, I'm just looking at the competitive elements here. If I'm Amazon, how do I think about it? No, I mean, if you look at Amazon's public statements over the last four years, right? 1P versus 3P, I think 3P has always gone faster, right? I think that's number one. I mean, I've been part of a platform before in Mitra where we started private brands and Mitra private brands did incredibly well. But it can't be more than 30, 40%, right? The remaining 60, 70% will still be marketplace brands, right? So I think, mm-hmm. yes, they will do some part of it, but I actually think there's always room for brands, number one. Number two is I refer back a little bit to the earlier one, which is we're mostly an unbranded market. I think we're not fighting for share. We're, I think all of us are converting unbranded to branded, which is the large market that we're really going after. Fair enough. So if, um, if I'm a uh, new budding um, D2C entrepreneur, uh, what is some of the more non-obvious things about building a brand I should know, which I might like put it differently? What are some of the most common traps which we I would I mean, have the first, I mean, I, I mean, maybe some of these are obvious, but I'll state them anyway. I think the first is, I think customer love matters. You know, sometimes people forget it. I mean, you know, you can do all the Amazon spend optimization you want or the SEO that you want, but if the product is not good and the reviews and ratings are not good, repeats are not going to happen. So I think... Getting your product quality right for the price point that you're operating in seems like a very basic thing, but actually many brands get it wrong because you're focusing on all the peripherals. You can always grow a brand through subsidy, right? Always. I mean, at some price point, everything will sell, right? So the question is, can you actually figure out unit economics and consumer value proposition? And can you get that right? Which is the right product quality that I can sell at a premium and make money. 
I mean, seems very obvious, but actually, by the way, many brands don't get that right. Instead, they focus on revenue, GMV as a metric, all of these things, which I think are all outcomes. But the reality is you're selling a great product, right? So I think focusing on that, I think is important. The second is, I think being present across channels is important. And what I mean by that is, uh, as a brand, as an independent brand, being platform neutral and being able to crack more than one channel early on is important. One of the things, as I told you, I've, I've met 700 founders, right? One of the one of the things that's quite was quite striking to me is most of them are very good at one thing. So, for example, somebody has cracked Amazon spend optimization. Somebody has cracked how to work with Flipkart in the FBA model. Right, so it's important to sort of go beyond the channel and make sure that you're 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 able to crack more than one channel as you grow, because that leads to healthy growth, some some control on your end outcomes as opposed to the platforms having all of the control. And I think it's important to sort of establish that. I think that's the second thing that I think is important. I think the third is to have a healthy mix between D to C, offline, and platform. All three channels have very different dynamics. And I think all three bring different things to the table. I think the platform gives you your initial product market fit. It gives you growth momentum. It gives you reviews and ratings. It's the easiest and I would say most economically profitable way to grow, but least defensible over time. I think offline is important because it makes your brand real. right? And D2C is important because you have a continuous consumer connect. So getting the balance right between those three as you scale in your first 18, 24 months is important. You do too much of one or too little of the other, they're all they're all problematic. That's a great point. And I thought about it that way. So is there is there a notion of PMF in the D2C world? I mean, we talk about product market fit in yeah, the yeah. tech world. Yeah. Uh, so how I how think, long does it take to do that? I, I think there is. And I think in my mind it's a two to three year journey. I hadn't thought about it as PMF either. So it's a great question. So I think PMF in my mind is the ability to have unit economics with the right reviews and ratings, right? And the product quality. I think PMF for me is being able to be successful at more than one channel. And I think that's really important to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And PMF is to be able to generate enough economic surplus for me to be able to invest in branding, right? I think all these three, I think take two years in my mind, minimum, right? You need to be through, I mean, if you're in fashion, of course, you need to go through a couple of spring, summers and a couple of autumn winters, right? Mm-hmm. You're in beauty, you need to, for example, be do do this not for four hero SKUs, but do it for three categories across 40, 50 SKUs. If you're home, you need to be able to do it. You can't be a one-hit wonder with one SKU product that's successful with a lot of reviews. You need to, as you think about a brand, you need to think about how can you actually build this across at least two, maybe three categories. So do you think that we will see a Mensa brand in Bloomingdale's or Macy's on Nordstrom's one of these days? I, I Why would you not? I mean, I think, by the way, we should be in modern retail globally. It may, I think we'll definitely see some of the Mensa brands globally and offline. I think there's no reason not to. I think we're playing more in the mass premium segment. So maybe less Nordstrom, more Macy's, more Costco, more Walmart, more Target. But I think certainly I feel like this can actually be global and spread across and it should be available in both offline and online retail globally. Well, wonderful. It has been absolutely terrific talking to you, Anant. If our listeners would like to get in touch with you, how how they do that? Yeah, the easiest way is to email me. It's Anant, A-N-A-N-T-H, at mensabrands.com, M-E-N-S-A-B-R-A-N-D-S.com. 
be happy to. I'm always happy to chat about D2C, building great brands in India and tech. Wonderful. Thanks, Anand, for being with us on Prime. Thank you. Dear listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app for free and you'll be the first one to know when new episodes are available. Just search for Prime Venture Partners Podcast in Apple Podcast, Spotify, CastBox or however you get your podcasts. Then hit subscribe. And if you have enjoyed the show, we would be really grateful if you leave us a review on Apple Podcast. To read the full transcript, find the link in the show notes.